There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to be talking about creativity. More importantly, how can you, leading a team, get more creativity? So now, if you lead a team, you are probably pretty enthusiastic about having new ideas and creative solution and creative approaches. And I would imagine you even say that on a regular basis in team meetings and around, particularly around strategic um, discussions. And after all, it's the creativity that generates the breakthrough ideas and ultimately the breakthrough results. There is, however, a very big but attached to creativity. For all the value that creative individuals bring to the team, they can be incredibly difficult to manage. That's the part we don't often talk about. So today I want to talk about our stereotypes of creative people, what it's like to actually manage them, how you can manage creative talent a little bit better, and ultimately how you get better creative results. And if you happen to be a creative person, you're going to find you get some ideas towards the end of the show about how you can make those creative ideas more sellable inside your organization. So with me today is Jennifer Mueller. Jennifer is a PhD in social and developmental psychology. She's held a number of faculty positions at top business schools from Wharton, Yale to NYU Stern Business School, and she's currently at University of San Diego. Now, along the way, one of her papers called The Bias Against Creativity went viral. And after 65,000 downloads and 100 media mentions and being named as a famous study in The Atlantic, Jennifer decided it was time to turn it into a book. And so that is the subject of her latest book and what we're going to be talking about today. So Jennifer's work has been featured in a lot of major media outlets from the Wall Street Journal to NPR, CNN, HBO, Fortune, um, Forbes and Fast Company. And Jennifer, I'm delighted to have you as a guest today. I'm delighted to be here, Wanda. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this one. Okay, so now this is one of my pet peeves. I have to start with just a little bit of story to lead this in. A few years ago, I got asked to do a keynote speech around a conference on creativity. And what they really wanted me to do was to talk about diversity and the importance of diversity for creativity. And I did that, but I did that by talking about four individuals, four case studies, that people that I had coached who were creative and asked the audience, what would you do to manage them? And the audience said to me, absolutely to a person, all four people, they would fire them. <laughs> so why is it, or do we, do you find that we have this love-hate relationship with creativity? No, for sure. Uh, you know, one of the things that startled me when I first went down the rabbit hole looking at this problem, I'll call it a problem, is you can't easily get people to say outright they hate creativity. So if you right. ask people, for example, I used to go around asking people their the role that creativity played in their work. And I did this because I had this kind of sense, like you did, Wanda, when you were approaching people in that conference and giving them this case study, 
I had this sense like there was something odd. And so I would ask, so what role does creativity play in your work? And one line manager had the following to say. He said, look, and this was a person in a pharmaceutical company. He said, look, you know, I'm not an artist. You know, if I do something wacky, I could kill a patient. So, you know, I, I don't know. To which I replied, oh, so creativity doesn't have much to do with your day-to-day work. To which he then replied, you know what, I take offense to that. If I'm not innovative, if I'm not pushing the boundaries, then patients could die. So I think that there is this strange push-pull. And part of the problem, I think, is the dialogue we've been having, at least in the creativity literature and in the popular press and amongst practitioners, is how much we love creativity, how much we want it and to cultivate it. And even when this program started, they talked about, you know, creativity uh, or wanting to get out of your comfort zone and how that's a good thing and leaders need to think different and all of that. But most of that conversation is so inspirational and doesn't deal with this other reality that creativity equals discomfort. Creativity equals not only outside your comfort zone, but in the zone that you think is inconceivable, impossible, perhaps morally incorrect. And, you know, creativity requires that we challenge basic, the basic ways we organize and that makes it a very difficult thing to integrate into our worldview. Um, and, and so talking about that, I think, is important because at least we can then be aware we have this problem. So instead of just reacting whenever we see it, we can now manage that reaction and decide if creativity is really something that we actually want or we don't. Okay. All right. I love that, that creativity forces us to challenge the way we organize and the way we think. I find when I'm talking to leaders about change, they inevitably want change. Usually that involves some creativity along the way. And ultimately what they really want is for the organization to change and for them to stay static. And I also (laughs) describe this as I want everybody to change around me, you know, in a big giant circle around me, but I don't want to change. And that is that is the problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, well, I'll I'll talk about changing this way. I'll frame the same thing you said, just in 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 the way I've started to think about it. When I hear leaders talk about change, what they mean is they want more of the good stuff. They want more profit, and they want less of the bad stuff, like costs, you know, errors, and pretty much across the board, I think leaders would agree that that kind of change is good. And the way to achieve that kind of change is fundamentally through motivating the system to engage in that kind of change, making very clear goals that are achievable, monitoring the progress. Like, that's the typical way you make that kind of change. And then there's the creative change. And the creative change is not just about changing what you do and how you behave, but changing how you think, doing potentially the opposite. Like, this whole notion of increasing spending to reduce costs. For many leaders, that in and of itself is impossible, would be, require creative change, would require to change how they think before the behaviors can follow suit. Okay. And so that's what, what, I, what I think, what I see is that leaders feel very comfortable with change in the sense of, you know, improving the bottom line, um, but they feel very uncomfortable with creative change, which requires them to perhaps embrace things they view as opposite or that people around them view as opposite. And so that, I think, is a, is a real challenge for leaders, and one way they can help overcome that challenge is to recognize when they're faced with mere change, like nobody's going to 
bat an eye if you want to increase your profits versus creative change where everybody is going to, it's going to be pretty controversial and you have to sell it. It, it requires a totally different way to change people's thinking before they can then change behavior. So that's the way I started to think about change. Yeah. And don't you think part of this is just an absolute fear of risk and a failure? I mean, risk increases cost, failure increases cost. Better we stay with the mediocre thing we have, at least it's a known, as opposed to this unknown that could be a disaster. Yeah, I think certainly, but here's where it gets a little complicated. What we're finding is that this framework around risk and failure, at least the way we're talking about it, it implies that people want to make correct decisions, right? You want to do what's not going to fail, what's correct, what will succeed. Um, And what I've learned as a result of that is we basically trained leaders to think that a creative solution, almost like shift their definition of what they mean by innovation and creativity such that it conforms to this worldview of the solution being correct. So in other words, what happens is, and what we see, is that when a person's all of a sudden in a leadership role, so they now have control over allocating resources, their definition of what creativity means actually shifts. So the person on the outside is looking in saying, that isn't creative, and the per- person who's a leader, because their definition of creativity has now shifted to include what is correct, what's already being done, as long as a lot of people use it, it has mass implications, now that leader thinks whatever that is, is creative because it is correct. So an example would be, imagine you have a startup company, and that company either has a ton of Facebook likes and Kickstarter investment or very few. The average person out there will look at that company and think it's creative, and the Facebook likes and how many people are using that particular product almost doesn't matter and doesn't factor into whether or not they see that company is offering a creative product. The leader will only see that company as creative if it already has the Facebook likes and Kickstarter investment. If it doesn't, it's not creative. It's just trivial or beneath their notice. And the problem with that way of thinking is creative ideas by definition are just buggy. They might not work. And the metrics around them are problematic. They tend to overinflate and overestimate the value of the idea or sometimes underestimate it. Um, and so using those metrics is a really bad way to make decisions about new ideas. Um, and you may have heard about, you know, stories about people faking metrics and how easy that is to do. You may also have heard about stories about people seeing the metrics. Oh, everybody likes this. I'm going to click like too. So sometimes the metrics don't even have anything to do with the idea itself, just people hurting in a direction or not. So I think the problem that leaders have is their definition of what innovative is innovative changes when they're on the inside and they're not even aware of it. And when you're on the outside looking at the leader and saying, that's not creative, what, what, they're doing what they've always done. But to the leader themselves, they're like, yes, this is innovative, this is creative, this is completely new. An example of that would be, um, there was a Wall Street Journal article called The Innovator's Enigma. And it chronicled uh, Procter & Gamble's ZZZ product, which was basically NyQuil without the cough medicine. And the... Uh, Bob McDonald, the CEO at the time, said, this is a completely new product category. And the line managers looked at, looked at ZZZQL and said, are you kidding me? This is Benadryl with a brand. This is ex- 
expensive Benadryl. This has been on the market for years. There's um, Every single competitor of ours has a similar product. This is not a new market category. What are you talking about? And part of what Bob McDonald's was talking about was ZZZ Cole was financially successful, super feasible, had a mass market immediately. And that's why he viewed it as innovative, even though other people at P&G were thinking, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? This isn't innovative at all. It might be profitable, but it's not innovative. Okay, so this is a fundamental shift that I just want to repeat because it's kind of hard to get your head wrapped around it. So basically, when I become the leader, my view of what a creative solution is changes from being a breakthrough, radical, different to being something that's successful. That's already successful. To already okay. be successful, it has to have been in the market, proven, lots of people are using it, we know a lot about it, which is basically okay. what the status quo looks like. All right, so that explains, in a single nutshell, why it is so hard to sell a creative idea to leaders, right. especially to executive teams, because if their definition of what is creative is already successful, by default, my new idea is going to be hard to prove that it is already successful. Okay, I get it. Unless you've got those fake metrics. <laughs> yes. I mean... The, the skeptical way to think about it is, you, you know, the way Eric Reese in his book, Lean Startup, talks about vanity metrics, um, yeah. which is basically finding a way to make the metric and yeah. finding a way to make it really, really good. Um, but the problem is now the leader, all you're doing is being gained. That's all it is. And you bought into this idea that you can be gained. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. All right, so do we have other stereotypes that about um, creative types? I mean, you've talked about some components here. Are there others? Yes, for sure. So one of the things that I've done in my work is map out the beliefs people have about creative people. It turns out there's two different kinds of creative people that are relevant in the workplace. The first is the creative, what we call the creative type. But the second is an innovator. And what's interesting about creatives and innovators is they're both seen to be unconventional. They're both seen to be smart. Um, they're also both seen to be incredibly interpersonally difficult. They're seen to be narcissistic, overconfident, <laughs> sound familiar. <laughs> but the distinguishing features of creatives and innovators, so creatives are seen to be super open, but they're naive. They're not very efficient. They kind of go off in random directions. They're disorganized. Um, and the innovators, in contrast, are stubborn. They adhere to what they believe. Um, it's, but they're also savvy. They're wise. They know how to manage situations. And they're super efficient. They're super organized. And they get stuff done. They're able to implement. So there are these two versions of creative people that you could peg a person into. And what we found is if you're pegged as an innovator, people think of you as an innovator, you have a higher likelihood of getting your idea through and having people say yes to it and endorse it because primarily they think you're savvy. And so the idea you chose must not be something that would make them look bad versus if you're a creative type and you pitch your idea, you might not get your idea endorsed by others because they think, oh, that's a creative person. They're kind of naive, you know, so they're, they're so disorganized and naive. They may not be thinking about all the concerns like feasibility and whether or not people will think if this is a crazy idea and whatnot. So I'm, I, should, I shouldn't really endorse this idea. 
And we have data that shows this. So if you want to be pegged as one or the other, be pegged as an innovator. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. This seems to tie right back to the notion that leaders see a creative solution as something that is already successful. So if as an individual, I am seen as already successful in that I'm savvy, I'm super efficient, I'm organized, I can execute, that just increases people's confidence that I can get this right. That's right. So that's another avenue. So in addition to having the metrics, having a reputation as somebody who gets stuff done, who's an innovator, is another thing you can do to cultivate whether or not your idea gets to the system. Okay. All right. So fabulous. Um, So we've talked a lot about, you know, how we need innovators, especially we need some creative types and maybe two, but especially we need innovators. And we've talked about why health leaders see innovation, but how do creative individuals feel in this whole process? Do they, and I see an awful lot of people who've just kind of given up. Yes, I've seen it too. What's your experience on that one? Well, this is one of the reasons why I started down this rabbit hole of trying to really understand this love-hate relationship because I was hearing people, I was, I was sitting in the audience at, for example, innovation conferences, innovation summits, and hearing the CEOs talk about innovation and how it's important and you can't get a CEO to say innovation stupid. You just won't hear that in America. Um, and But you sit in the audience and you hear the people who are the engineers the people who are the ones writing the patents or solving the problems, the geneticists, the scientists, and you hear them say, what a bunch of malarkey. Like, this is, they're such hypocrites. They don't care about innovation here. This is just a place where they just, they just want lots of widgets. That's all they want. And they want their number or they want their metric or they want to, to, to see the number of patents, whatever. Um, and, and that felt very discouraging because when I spoke with the executives, I would ask them, Does, do you really care about innovation? And they convinced me that innovation really was their passion and really was important. So how can you explain while people who are supposed to generate the ideas are disenchanted and the people at the top are confused? They don't know what's going on. And in fact, they're not only confused, but they're saying, you know what? I'm not only confused. I, I care about innovation. I'm not getting the innovation I want. You know, I tell them to give me innovation. They say they're so innovative and they care about innovation, but what they're giving me is something I can't use. It's not innovative. Uh. So the problem that I started to realize was partially a matter of communication and also partially a matter of the fact that, you know, you can generate a ton of ideas. We know a lot about how to do that, and it's very important. But in the course of generating ideas, it's important to be able to recognize whether or not a new idea has potential. In other words, it's so important to recognize the creativity of that idea for all kinds of reasons. Because when you're generating an idea, you've got a set of 10. Um, finding out the new idea that has the most potential is key because you want to focus on that idea now and develop that. And sometimes what happens is the idea generators themselves, the people, the scientists, and whatnot, they generate all these ideas, but the ones they choose to pursue are the ones that actually aren't that new. Um, and, and, and so being able to recognize which ones are creative can help you ultimately generate a better idea. But in addition to that, when you're on the other side of that and you're looking at other people's ideas, you know, being able to see which new ideas have value is incredibly difficult. There's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty around that. And what, the, what this means, though, is that 
more important than the content of the idea itself. It turns out the content of what you do and how important your idea is, whatever, almost doesn't matter. The communication and the way you pitch the idea matters more. And we see this with extreme examples like Nobel Prize winning papers. Um, George Akerlof's paper on Market for Lemons, which was initially rejected as a trivial advance by a journal later to be accepted and win a Nobel Prize. This happened with a recent Nobel Prize winning paper on graphene. Um, this happened in my field, um, The Strength of Weak Ties. Mark Granovetter, he wrote this paper. It's the most influential paper in our field. It was initially rejected from the first journal he submitted it to. So in other words, the content of your idea almost doesn't matter. It's how you communicate the idea. So you can have a Nobel Prize winning idea and it won't get anywhere if you don't communicate it in the way that the audience resonates with. All right. So I think one of the reasons why people are getting, getting annoyed is that they haven't, this, this, this ability to recognize creative ideas and to understand how to communicate them is a new skill set. In other words, you can read all the books on how to generate ideas, do that. It's a wonderful skill. But if you don't know how to communicate it, and if you don't understand even how to recognize them yourself, you're missing this other critical skill that it turns out is even more important if you want to have your ideas make impact. Okay. All right, Jennifer. Perfect. Let me see if I can kind of summarize what has struck me. We're going to take a break, and then I want to come back and talk about this. You know, how do you communicate it for sure? So if I just summarize this, when I become a leader... My view of what a creative solution is actually changes. It goes from being a radical, different kind of wacky idea to being one in which it's already successful and there's a bit of proven track record that it's successful, which explains why we always get creative ideas that are just incremental improvements as opposed to really radical ideas. Furthermore, as an individual presenting a creative idea, if I'm seen as having the reputation of somebody who's pretty savvy and can get things done and is efficient and can execute, then that increases the chances that somebody's going to see my idea as successful. And then last of all, if I can understand which one of these is really going to work and how I communicate it in a way that I can really sell it to people, then I up the ante one more time that the idea is going to be seen as a successful, already successful idea. Is that a fair summary, Jennifer? Fair summary. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break. With me today is Jennifer Mueller. Jennifer is um, had, did a fabulous paper ages ago called The Bias of Creativity that had gone viral, and her new book is called Creative Change. So when we come back, I want to talk about how is it that you communicate these great ideas. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, welcome back. With me today is Jennifer Mueller. Jennifer has done research for quite a while now on the bias against creativity, and in particular, why is it that we say we want creativity and then we resist it? So the title of her book, if you're interested, Creative Change, Why We Resist It and How We Embrace It. Then we've just been talking about the fact that leaders, CEOs included, but leaders, when they become leaders, change their view of what creativity is. As much as they say they want it and genuinely believe it, what they're looking for are solutions that are already proven to be successful. And that is the deal. So that means that my reputation, my ability to present it as a successful, my ability to get metrics are all going to affect whether or not the leader sees my idea as a good one, a creative one, a useful one. So Jennifer, I want to talk for a minute. You just teed up some ideas there, but here I am as a person sitting inside an organization and I have a creative idea What's the secret to communicating that and getting it effective? And you also said I have to recognize whether it's creative or not. Give me some clues about how that happens. Yeah. So what we've learned is that, and we didn't talk about this earlier, Wanda, but we we alluded to it a little bit, that people have this implicit negative knee-jerk reaction to creativity. Now, you saw some of this at this conference where you gave these four case studies, and immediately the audience was like, oh, we fire them. I think what you could have been seeing is an evidence of this knee-jerk reaction. We find this knee-jerk reaction in the laboratory when we ask people to say, okay, for every one problem, there is a correct solution, right? Three statements to support that notion versus there are multiple possible solutions. And when they focus on there being one correct solution, um, they, they explicitly say, oh, yeah, creativity is great, but their reaction time tests associate the word creativity with the word vomit, um, and they tend to reject creative ideas or, or see an idea that is as creative that other people see as creative and they downgrade that creativity of that idea. And so what this suggests is within the first few seconds of hearing about something, somebody has already d- had this ick response 
that's powerful, visceral, and they'll immediately just reject it. So the first thing to do is be aware that you yourself can have that response. So I see this in my brainstorming teams whenever I say, hey, choose the best idea. And immediately, the most novel one is never the best, right? Because best means it's proven. It's great. You know it will work, right? If you don't know that, then how can it be the best? Um, so this negative knee-jerk reaction can happen when you're generating an idea yourself and now you're choosing which one to go for and it has to be the best or the most correct. But it can also happen when you're pitching it to somebody else and they have this framework this, that leaders have, which is it has to already be successful because that's what a correct idea is. That's what the best is. It's already successful. So how do you overcome that? Um, you know, so one of the things that we see in teams um, when they start first start talking about creative ideas um, is the amount of time they take in discussing that idea is predictive of whether or not they're going to choose a more novel idea or a less one. So they spend more time discussing, they have a longer, more drawn-out discussion, then they're more likely to choose something new. Short discussions that are quick, they tend to choose status quo, even when they're told to choose the new. So there's something about engaging in a dialogue with the person who's supposed to choose your idea. That is really helpful because we find when people first see that novel idea, their knee-jerk reaction is ick, and to get them out of that can take time and effort. And so how do you do that? Do you want to you go into how you do that? Or yeah, I, I just wanted to make sure we've made this clear. So when you ask people to choose the best the right, the correct, the perfect, the solution that's guaranteed, any version of those, what you're doing is setting up, choose the solution that you know is going to already be successful. And that means you don't choose the best solution, you choose the status quo. That's so right. There's an, and, you, and, and you can dress it up as more creative, the status quo. All right. Um, okay. Because it all right, is so, yeah. And then if I talk, get people talking, I give them longer to talk about it, which we know time is our enemy in corporate life. Then I got a better chance of getting them to choose the novel. Okay, so how do I do that? All right. So what we find, and this is across several different kinds of, of ways of studying this, is the biggest barrier that people have is this feeling of not knowing. That is, they don't understand the idea. Or if they do understand the idea, meaning they understand the basic idea, their knee-jerk reaction often is not feasible, costs too much money. You know, or even sometimes already being done, um, which also indicates that they haven't thought through ways to make the idea more feasible or ways in which the idea is different than what already exists or whatever. So the nuance isn't there. Um, so one of the ways, one of the things I see people use to good effect is when you approach the person. So, so any decision maker, if, for example, you're going into a steering committee meeting, right, and that steering committee is reviewing your team's ideas. The decision about what that steering committee is going to do probably has happened before the actual meeting takes place at the water cooler. When the members are like, what do you think about that? I don't know. What do you think? Because usually in the meeting, now they're briefing the team and telling them what they're going to do. So in that meeting, it's the wrong time as a team member to try to push your idea forward because the decision has already been made. So so knowing when the decision is going to be made is really important. And you want to hit that person who's a decision maker well before the decision has been made in some type of context where you can do what I call a feedback pitch. Now, feedback pitch is a little bit different than asking for advice or help. And the way it works is this. Feedback pitch is all about trying to figure out what the decision maker currently thinks about the idea. 
So the decision maker might love the idea. So asking for help is about, look, I'm struggling. What do you think? That doesn't necessarily work in the sense because you're signaling weakness to the decision maker by saying you're struggling, right? Even though asking for help can be very effective because now for all kinds of reasons we can get into later. So you're not asking for help. You're, you're simply asking, here's my idea. You're at the water cooler. At some point, well before the decision has been made, maybe it's informal or maybe it has to be more formal, but you have enough time to have a little quick discussion and you can say, here's my idea. What do you think? You're asking very open-ended, and all you want to know is generally what they think. They might come back and say, oh, this is great, which is terrific. Then you can document that. Send them an email saying, I'm so glad we had this conversation. You're good. But more often than not, they're going to say, nope, this is wrong with it, this is wrong with it, and this is wrong with it. And then the second thing you can do as a result of that is to say, okay, what's your advice? What would you do? You enter a collaborative space with this person. Now, what tends to happen when, this, when people tell others their creative ideas and they have all these objections is the person who's objecting wants to make the idea more familiar or less creative. Right. <laughs> and that's one of the downsides, right? Like, you got to, you know, make it more like the idea we already have in place. And that way, you know, maybe we'll, we'll consider it. So this gaining of advice gets really tricky because you don't actually want to make the idea just more like the status quo. You want to keep its distinctiveness. All you want to do is now make the idea more cognitively familiar to the person who's the decision maker and make them feel more comfortable emotionally with the idea. So the conversation that ensues is one of you're trying to find ways to keep the distinctiveness of the idea that also meets with that decision maker's interest and thoughts about, you know, what they're concerned about. And sometimes all you need is a small change. Because what happens is if that decision maker makes a a small change on your idea, all of a sudden they psychologically own it. They, it feels more familiar. It doesn't feel so alien to them because it's something that they also feel responsible for. And if at the end of that conversation, you then email them to follow up and say, you know, I've made this, small, this, this change. Thank you so much. Assuming you are actually, you know, thankful to them for making a good suggestion. Now, all of a sudden, you have their buy-in. Um, and well before, in fact, you might, quote, unquote, need it. Um, so, so a feedback pitch can be a very effective way to help people deal with this ick reaction, make ideas more familiar because you give the decision maker ownership. And worst case scenario is that decision maker says, oh, now it's my idea. And what I tell idea generators is I say, look, you know, here's the truth. No idea ever makes it anywhere without some gatekeeper saying yes to it. And in truth, that gatekeeper also has to take a risk. So in that way, they're also responsible for this idea. And that's the reality with any creative idea. So instead of thinking, oh, man, you know, someone stole my idea, this person taking credit, think, wow, you know, this idea got through and I'm re- responsible for at least that part of it. And, and you can take pride in that. Okay. All right. So a feedback conversation. I just want to repeat the part you said at the beginning. So it's not that I'm going to go and say, what do you think? Because that's too weak to start. What I want to do is to say, here's the idea. Here's what I'm enthusiastic about. And then I can ask, so what do you think? And I listen then for the thing that they that feels unfamiliar to them. I don't want to get defensive 
because that will get us into an argument and that won't go very well. And I'm looking for a small adaptation that makes this idea feel more familiar, both cognitively and emotionally, and that lets the decision maker now take a bit of ownership for it. Brilliant. Okay. Are there other techniques you can use? Other techniques, in the course of saying, here's my idea, so the first part that you rightfully note, where you're describing what the idea is, it turns out that there are very simple ways to describe ideas that provide an immediate snap aha for decision makers, that in and of themselves can make an idea seem great off the bat. Um, And we, you've probably heard about this in the context of things like Hollywood pitches. Aliens with pitched as jaws in space, for example. So it's combining things that don't seem like they should be combined in ways that give people an immediate picture of whatever it is that you're pitching. Um, okay. And so using that kind of technique, two things that seem familiar to a person that you're now combining, um, can be very helpful. Another is analogy. Um, making an analogy from one thing to another, um, and th- there there are many there are many different examples of how this has been used effectively. Um, the one is Rent the Runway, which talked about and, and, and sold its company as the Netflix of fashion. Which, of course, this analogy might be outdated now because Netflix is a totally different business model now. But about 10 years ago, Netflix was you signed up for a certain number of movies online and you mm-hmm. got a, a DVD or CD or DVD of the movie and you had a queue. And this was effectively their model for fashion. They, mm-hmm. they, people, women could, or men could sign up online for the clothes they wanted and they would get these clothes in a queue of clothes. So it was a similar kind of idea, but it's a complex kind of a system. It's a complex business model, but the Netflix of fashion quickly tells you exactly what it is. Okay. Right? So all the details pop into place. And, and so, and there's even other ways you can, you can do this. Recently in California, um, they had an initiative called Toilet to Tap. Now, you may remember the drought, which, of course, now there's not a drought. There's so much water, we don't know what to do with it. But there was a year ago a drought. So there's this question of what do we do? And there were many different solutions. And one solution that was very popular to politicians was toilet to tap. I mean, who would pay for toilet water? So if you can turn toilet water into tap, isn't that a wonderful, cheap, and efficient solution? In fact, it is. It's much cheaper than um, creating other kinds of solutions out there. So it was one of the most cheapest there was cheaper solution available, but it turns out it's disgusting. And the average consumer like you and I would say, why would you ever drink anything that came out of the toilet? So a horrible way to talk about drinking water is by referencing the word toilet, right? So you might want to recategorize what this is and not talk about toilet at all, but instead talk about something like the clean water initiative, you know what I mean? To sell it to people. Right. So how do you pitch the idea by either using a combination, an analogy, or recategorizing something in the first few seconds of introducing it can give people the same kind of aha feeling you had when you first had the idea and then make all the details snap into place? Okay. So in all of these principles, as I'm pitching the idea, it strikes me that what I'm looking for is any way I can find that makes the idea feel somewhat familiar. Because that taps into the notion that it's a solution that's already known and successful. Familiar is a complicated word. Because okay. 
if you think about familiar, it implies that all I need to do is expose my idea to people and have them see it multiple times, and the more they see it, they'll like it. But okay. let me give you an example. You know of a post-it, right? You probably yeah. use them. Yeah. Um, well, initially, when they sold the post-it, when 3M first went on its advertising campaign to sell a post-it, they put up billboards of post-it, um, pictures of post-it, um, had flyers about post-it, and guess what? People didn't buy post-its. The picture okay. of the post-it, the advertising for the post-it, the exposure to this idea of post-it was confusing because people didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> In other words, mere exposure, just exposing to something and making familiar to a billboard might not work if people don't understand the concept to begin with. Right. Exposure only helps once the person already understands what the idea is. So, yes. Familiarity can help, but only if you also have understanding. Um, so what yeah. ended up happening for the post-it was the way they ended up selling it. First, the post-it, because you, you can imagine how the decision makers felt about the post-it when they did this broad advertising campaign and it didn't sell. They were ready to table it. They were done with the post-it. Yep. So how did the post-it survive? Turns out Art Brief, the guy who's credited for inventing the post-it, he, in the course of selling it to the VPs, had given post-its to the admin staff. It turns out the admin staff were addicted to post-its. They used the post-its. So a couple of the VPs, many of the VPs said, look, if this isn't selling, it's not a good idea, it's not creative, it's stupid. Um, Two of the VPs got really intrigued and curious as to why the admin staff were using the post-its when um, the average person wouldn't sell them. Why were the admin staff addicted? So they went to the business district um, in this one town, and they sat down with people, and they showed them the post-its. And it turns out that people needed a post-it to experiment with it in order to figure out what it was. And when they did that, 10 post-its equaled a 90% likelihood of buying a post-it. And that's how they sold the post it I love it. So we're back to the notion of familiarity, but familiarity is not because of exposure. Familiarity is because I see how I can use it. I see how it connects with what I'm already doing. I see how this can be successful. That's right. Okay. All right. We're going to take another break again. I find this fascinating discussion. With me today is Jennifer Mueller. The book that we've been talking about is Creative Change, Why We Resist It and How to Embrace It. And the notion in this segment is if you have a creative idea, one, as you know from the last segment, that the better your reputation for being an innovator, meaning somebody who's savvy and can get stuff done, the more likely people are going to buy the idea. And two, the better you pitch the idea, the better you're going to be. And one pitch is a feedback pitch. Let me give you the idea. And then instead of saying, you know, what's wrong with that or help me with this, you want to say, what do you think? And then I want to make small adaptations that make the person think it's theirs. And then the last notion is I need to make the idea more familiar, not because of routine purchases, but because I'm going to do an analogy or I'm going to recategorize or I'm going to compare it to something else or I'm going to use a comparison that makes sense to you. So you begin to understand what the idea really is about. All right, so we're going to take a break again, and when we come back, I want to do some advice for managers. So when you say you really want creative ideas, let's talk about what you need to be doing. We'll be right back. Follow 
us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Jennifer Mueller. Jennifer is an associate professor at the University of San Diego. She's been on faculty at a lot of top business schools, including Wharton, Yale School of Management, and NYU Stern School of Business. She's studied for ages creativity, starting with the notion of why is it that leaders say we want more creativity, we're really enthusiastic about creativity, and really mean they want creative solutions. Yet their creative presenters, creative idea makers like the scientists and engineers don't believe a bit of it. And it's that disconnect, psychic disconnect that we've been talking about. And the notion is, as a leader, you redefine what it means to have a creative solution. And it becomes the one that you believe is already successful. So we're looking at creative, the creative idea as the successful idea. And that has all sorts of implications for as a creative individual, how I need to begin to pitch those ideas so that the leader will take advantage of them. I need to pitch it with a reputation that makes me look successful. I need to pitch it in an analogy or a comparison that lets the person see the idea and see how that can be successful. And I need to pitch it in a way that lets the person feel some ownership of the idea. So, okay, we're going to talk about what I do if I'm a creative person. I want to talk now, what do I do if I'm a manager? And I really, really, really genuinely mean that I want creative ideas. What do I need to do, Jennifer? Oh, boy. (laughs) This is tough. I mean, part of the reason why this problem exists is organizations don't understand how to tolerate this kind of uncertainty. They're not built that way, right? Even if you have a portfolio of ideas and you have some sort of sense of risk. The problem with risk is with a creative idea, you can't assess risk. You don't know if it's high or low risk. That's 
problem, the idea itself might change completely in six months or overnight because pivoting to a different audience because, you know, you're, a new discovery was made and now it makes your idea feasible, something that was completely infeasible. Um, so what I say to managers is I say, look, you know, if you have an MBA, you have a problem if you want creativity because the MBA, you sit down and all they talk about is risk and knowing answers and being smart and being seen as smart and leading like you know the answers. In fact, that's our implicit belief about leaders. Good leaders, no answers. Bad leaders don't know what to do. And, and and so what I'm realizing, and what, and this is not just me. This is people who work in creativity and design. We're realizing that there's a problem here because we're tra- we're training our MBAs to think like worker bees. We're not training them to think like true innovators. Um, and and so another way to kind of think about this, and, and this is an emerging theme business school, is to get some training in design thinking. To get some training in in how to, in entrepreneurship, to get some training to understand the uncertainty and the crazy process that really ensues when you try to do something new. And what, what, when you see people who have actually invented something, when you see them enrolled in decision makers, they behave differently. So I'll give you an example of Tom Fogarty. Tom Fogarty is a physician. He discovered the um, a catheter that basically means that what used to be a procedure that where if you had a clot, for example, in the 1950s, if you had a clot, then you had one of two options. They either cut off your limb or right. they opened up the vein to try to scrape out the clot, which had a 100% likelihood of you dying. So you either lacked a limb or you died. That was solution. And what Tom did was he, through his experience with fly fishing, came up with this new way to poke a small tube through the vein and to take out the clot by blowing up a balloon at the end of the tube and pushing it back through. This today has become the gold standard of the way we do this. But Tom also knows when he tried to get that idea published, he actually ran a study to show that relative to the old method of either death or (laughs) taking off a limb, his new method had 100% success rates. He couldn't get it published by the journal until he pushed it through with his network contacts. And then when it got published, nobody used it because everybody wanted the gold standard method until a smart lawyer sued a hospital for using the old method when this new method had 100% likelihood of success. So okay. um, he knows how this works. So what, But when you see him in action and you see him look at the investments he makes, because now he's a venture capitalist, he's an angel investor, he has an incubator, the Thomas Fogarty Institute of Innovation. When you ask him how does he choose which innovations to include, what he will say is, first off, I have to embrace the reality that this is unpredictable. Innovation is unknowable. I can't know. And even calling this an incubator is something I have to remind myself every day is not a good idea because incubator means there are little eggs that are going to hatch and there's going to be a chicken at the end of all this. (laughs) And the reality is that all these eggs might die. You know? And so... I intend to support and encourage the people that are in my quote-unquote incubator, but I recognize that many of them may not have full-fledged companies, and that does not mean they fail. It means that the technology wasn't there. 
And if they fail, the only reason why they fail is because they were not experimenting. They were not problem solving. They were not on it. They were not pivoting. They were not trying to make it work. They were sitting back and just assuming the metrics would come, which does in fact happen with, with clinical trials. People just sit back, okay, we're in the study, let's see, as opposed to being on the ground and listening to patients and learning what's wrong and trying to tweak stuff and doing the things that innovators do. So what he does is he says, look, I'm not here to know the answers. I'm here to figure out if I can find that person with that innovative spirit. And if that person has that skill, that person, it doesn't matter how many Stanford degrees they have or how smart they are. If they're not asking questions and curious and, and ha- ha- having this ingenuity, that person, they're not worth betting on. He bets on people and then he sits back, he takes a deep breath and he says, I can't know. And that's literally how he makes his money. And it's what research by Laura Fang and Joan Pierce has shown makes investors money. Not the vetting things and doing due diligence. That doesn't relate to making money. But the sitting back and choosing the person and betting on the person, not because they're innovators or, but because they're, they're curious and they're problem solvers. Um, okay. It's that kind of thinking that is making people like venture capitalists and angel investors money. Wow. So that would imply that if I really, as a leader inside a large organization, want some innovation, some creativity, and I am really willing to place a bet on the messiness that comes with that and the failures that may come from that, one is I need a way to carve it over there to protect it so nobody else kills it until we get some experimentation and some ideas. And then two, I need to find people that I'm willing to bet on because they're curious and they're problem solvers. And almost I get the sense of relentlessly asking questions. They have that grit um, and they have, but they also, not just grit, because grit could mean banging your head against the wall. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Right. Um, mm-hmm. they, they also have this sense of trying something different when the first thing didn't work. And that, that combination that we see, and, 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 and embracing this uncertainty. So a lot of people, what happens when they feel uncertain, they want to run away. They have the ick factor. They don't want to engage. Other people want to engage, um, and it's finding those who do and where, where that's of interest to them. I, I think that if you look at most CEOs and you see the ones who have that knack, many of them came from inventor backgrounds. I think Mark, Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike, was a designer before he rose up to the ranks of CEO. Yes. Um, and so if, if, you're, if you're an MBA student out there or if you have an MBA or you're in management, start inventing something. Take a chance and get that skill set. I think that's the exact skill set you need because when you're in that decision-maker role, I believe the way in which you start to see and recognize true potential value in the rule, in, in the new is that you adopt that way of thinking when you were an inventor. You adopt it and you use that exact lens in the course of Fabulous. that's the shift. Okay. Jennifer, I love it. I, they, you know, get some experience inventing. When I come back to my beginning story about the four creative individuals and everybody in the room said I'd fire them, they didn't get fired because I think their managers understood exactly what you've described. Their managers had said, I get what these people are like and I'm willing to place a bet on them because of some of the qualities that you just identified. So, unfortunately, we are out of time. With me today is Jennifer Mueller. 
Jennifer has a fabulous book called Creative Change, Why We Resist It and How to Frame It. Her work has been featured in all sorts of places from the Atlantic, HBR, Wall Street to Journal, Fast Company, Forbes, and Fortune. Jennifer, it was absolutely fabulous speaking with you today. Wanda, pleasure is all mine. Thank you. All right. Thanks, and join us next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.